is an Odyssey original. This is KX in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. A major conclusion when it comes to former President Trump and Russia will go in depth. Climate change could start ruining your travel plans, we'll explain. Also, the man who inspired a very popular book has a new book himself that's coming out. And here's the interesting part. This man died in 1995. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> but we'll explain. But we will explain. But we start with the conclusion that the FBI should never have started an investigation between the Trump campaign and Russia back in 2016. That from the special counsel who has been looking into that for four some odd years. With us is defense attorney and legal analyst Rachel Fassay. Rachel, thanks for being back with us. Thanks so much for having me. So as I understand uh, from what I've been reading so far, there's kind of a little bit of, uh, of something for everyone here. On the one hand, uh, the Trump administration, when Mr. Trump was president, was hoping that this special counsel would find some deep, dark conspiracy within the halls of the U.S. government. He did not find that. On the other hand, it would seem to me that Mr. Trump and his supporters could look at this and say, ah, I see we told you so. There was no collusion between Mr. Trump, his White House and Russia. I think you're right. I think it is a well-timed report as it relates to Mr. Trump and them saying basically there was no evidence at the start of the investigation to commence the investigation. So really all they're talking about in this report, as far as I can tell, is that the evidence wasn't there before they began the investigation. And let's remind everyone that Mr. Durham is a Trump appointee appointed by William Barr in October of 2020. Now, if I understand what you're saying here, uh, they're saying that there was not enough evidence at the beginning of the investigation, but the purpose of an investigation is to find evidence. And if you read the Mueller report, uh, that report did find quite a bit of evidence that while there may not have been, um, how shall I put this, some some over-the-top negotiation between the Trump campaign and Russia, there was a lot of stuff going on underneath and behind the scenes in Russia acting in a way that was designed to benefit Trump. So if you're saying that John Durham has concluded there was no evidence before the investigation, is he admitting that the investigation, once it got going, did find some evidence? And then why would you not have an investigation if that's the case? Well, I think the investigation is into whether it was appropriate for the FBI to have started the investigation, and they are looking into the evidence upon which that investigation began. And I think what you're going to find is that they are silent as it relates to what it found going forward. So it's focused on the Steele dossier and the propriety of beginning it. And I think he was tasked very specifically in his special counsel role to look at the commencement, not at what it found ongoing. So I, I think the devil's in the details, but I don't think that Mr. Trump supporters may be focusing on those details. Well, and, and to go back, Rachel, to what I was saying at the uh, at the outset, uh, again, just having read uh, what is available thus far from the report, which I take it as quite voluminous, 
you know, on the one hand, uh, you mentioned that the special counsel was uh, appointed by the attorney general who himself was a Trump appointee, yet the special counsel did not find that the government had this vast conspiracy aimed at Mr. Trump, which Mr. Trump and his supporters were hoping they would find. But then on the other side of that coin did find that the FBI was improper in in launching an investigation with scant to zero evidence. That's what it sounds like this finding is. It seems like a lot of to do at this moment as we've already you know, fast forwarded and know the results of that investigation. But Mr. Trump and William Barr determined at that time that this special counsel would launch an investigation into the conspiracy. That's right. That related to beginning this large probe. And there's no recommendation of charges as it relates to anything the FBI did, but more of a slap on the wrist. And it also mentions, look, the FBI's protocol has changed and this probably wouldn't happen again. All right. Thank you so much, uh, defense attorney and legal analyst Rachel Fizet. Right now, though, the World Health Organization says if you're looking to lose weight, avoid sugar substitutes. Kimberly Gomer is Director of Nutrition at Body Beautiful Miami. Kimberly, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. How are you today? Oh, I'm I'm okay. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you. Rob and you? You're I'm I'm well. Thank you for asking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. No, we're, we're all doing just just fine. But here's the thing, Kimberly. I remember, and I'm sure you do too, that for years and years, people were told you want to lose weight, give up the sugary drinks, do the sugar substitute ones, the the diet this, the locale that. Now we're being told that all of those sugar substitutes are not only not good for you, but they may be counterproductive. Yeah, they did a little bait and switch on us, right? Yeah. So unfortunately, it's not like, okay, you should stop using the artificial sweeteners and you can go back to sugar and honey. So unfortunately, they're not coming up with a, a good uh, uh, substitute. But the reality is that using the sugar substitutes, there's a lot of research that's kind of building and building and building, and it's starting to explode. So understanding that anybody who's been a dieter, you know, remember it started up, now I'm going to show you how old I am. It started back in the day with saccharin and tab and cyclamate. Tab? 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 (laughs) I I haven't heard tab in... Hello, 1966, just called. Exactly. (laughs) Dating myself. But then it just morphed into sugar alcohols and Splenda and aspartame and stevia. And okay, you're going to have a natural one. And unfortunately... Really, the research, and you know, there's the research happens, but you hear about it in in pieces, and it takes a long time until it translates to actually changes in the food industry and things like that. But uh, if you want, I can just speak a little bit about what is the problem with these artificial sweeteners. Well, I, I'm going to ask you that because uh, okay. you wouldn't know it to look at me, but my wife is a, a fitness and health and uh, life coach, and she has been oh. telling me for years that she doesn't want me drinking Coca-Cola, but she would rather me drink the regular sugar Coca-Cola than oh. the the uh, Diet Coke because the stuff <laughs> in the Diet Coke is more yeah. harmful for So she's been saying that for years. Uh, yeah. Why did it take the World Health Organization so long to catch up to my wife, and what is the real problem with these artificial sweeteners? 
Yeah, so I'm not I'm not going to agree. I think I've disagreed with this conversation before. <laughs> the last time we we chatted, I think that the sugar is as bad as the artificial sweetener. And that's really unfortunate because I'm not giving you a lot of options, but that is the truth is that there are, we know there are problems with sugar. You have sugar, it elevates blood sugar, it puts on weight. It's, you know, it's not positive for weight loss, especially in the form that we're getting it in processed foods and et cetera. But the artificial sweeteners where we can say, okay, we don't have you know, we don't have calories. How could this be bad? Well, here's the real deal. So there are really two main issues. One is our gut health. So we all know, or many of us know, that there's a lot of talk in the nutrition world about the gut and about the microbiome, which are these our gut that have to eat things, uh, the food, and they produce all kinds of uh, elements for our body. And the, the idea is that eating or consuming artificial sweeteners may disrupt some of the good bacteria in the gut. And the way it does it is we, we look at the gut and say, okay, well, what's going on with this bacteria? Well, what can happen? And by the way, it's not for everybody, but it's for some people, is that there's been a, an association of these artificial sweeteners uh, being... Uh, uh, a cause of gut issues. So what will happen is if you think about something sweet, like I'm thinking about a hot fudge sundae, even if you don't even smell it, you just think about it, there's a response that your body has. And when you actually consume artificial sweeteners, even though there aren't calories, there's a response that your brain and your body have to the sweet. And what happens is it re releases what they call the cephalic phase. And that is basically an insulin response in the body. So even before sugar comes into our bloodstream, the body gets prepared for it by producing insulin. So it's triggering, triggered by the sight, the smell, and the taste of food. So the sweet taste of the, and we all we mm. know if you've had artificial sweetener, it's much sweeter than sugar, right? So now we've gotten used to a very sweet, oversweet taste. So the question is, is that going to spike insulin and then have that right. cascade of problem with, with uh, blood sugar and then so, weight? So, Kimberly, here, here's the, the issue. Uh, before you mentioned it, I was not thinking about a hot fudge <laughs> sundae. <laughs> now, now I am, uh, and I'm almost obsessed with Broccoli. <laughs> Wait, wait, there's no, no way there's no. no way I'm going to broccoli from a hot fudge Sunday. That's never going to happen. Well, how about, well, wait a minute. You're in California yeah. with the gorgeous produce. How about a gorgeous watermelon? Uh, yeah, I mean, but, that is, that's amazing. But, right? you know, funny you mention our produce because in our next segment, we're going to be talking about <laughs> that citrus. That. And they're not doing so well. Oh, so. no. All Don't right. Thank you. Me. Thank you so much. Uh, Kimberly Gomer, a director of nutrition at uh, Body Beautiful Miami. And I'm not unfortunately kidding about that. Right. When we come back, yeah. Southern California citrus trees could be in big trouble because of a really tiny, 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 very small bug. And a little bit later in the show, the man at the center of a famous and touching book is out with a book of his own, but he's been dead for nearly 30 years. Huh. I know. It's like, how did he do that? What kind of agent does he have? A very good one. <laughs> Got to be a good one, yeah. yeah. 
Right now, though, a disease is attacking citrus trees across Southern California. Ken Pellman is with the L.A. County Agricultural Commissioner's Office. Victoria Hornbaker is the director of the Citrus Pest and Disease Prevention Division in the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, starting with you, uh, Ken, what is this disease and uh, what's it doing? Well, it's a bacteria and it attacks citrus trees and closely related plants. And what it does, it's a, it's a flow inhibitor. So it kills the, the flow of nutrients to the tree and then eventually it kills the tree. So we don't want this bacteria spreading and we're fighting the spread of it. Well, Victoria, talk about fighting the spread of it. I mean, this bug has been around for, what, a decade or more, but it is getting worse, as I understand it, in both Los Angeles and Orange counties. So what is being done, and is it really effective? You're right. So our first detection of the Asian citrusil, the insect that carries the bacteria, occurred in um, 2008 down in San Diego County and then in Imperial County, and in 2009 we found it in L.A., um, so what we do is we are we have staff out looking all the time for symptoms of this disease, and if we find diseased trees, we we get them um, sampled by our lab in Sacramento. We come out and we treat the tree, and we treat all of the other citrus trees in a 250 meter area, and we remove the positive trees. So if you remove the positive tree, you're taking out that bacteria from the environment, and the Asian citrus psyllids can't feed on it. Who's winning the war, the citrus or the bug? <laughs> Well, I'm an internal optimist, so I like to say that we have done a better job um, than anywhere else in the world where they've gotten this bug and disease. Um, We are still preventing this from getting into our commercial citrus production, which is a big win for California. Uh, We are seeing, you know, an uptick in in positive trees in LA and Orange, as you stated. But, you know, we're keeping those in those areas that are away from commercial citrus, which is very important. Uh, Ken, uh, so we're doing a good job of keeping this under control, according to uh, Victoria here. But if it's if it was not under control, uh, what would that mean for us? Obviously, I'm thinking citrus price is going to go up, but that fruit, once it's infected, can't be used for anything anymore. Right. Well, what happens is uh, if when the tree becomes infected and it starts uh, in flow, you know, it starts uh, hindering the flow of the nutrients, the fruit gets you know, you don't want it. It gets bitter tasting. It's misshapen. It falls off of the tree early. So that's, it's not like it's going to hurt people to eat it, but they're just not going to want to eat it. So that's the important thing is this disease is not uh, directly a threat to people or pets for that matter, but it does kill off the trees. And people, you know, they love having their citrus trees at home and they don't want them to die. So, Victoria, are we going to end up in a situation, because you said that uh, so far there's been a pretty good job done at protecting commercial crops, but are we going to end up in a situation where the um, the big companies are going to have their oranges and all they want and lemons and grapefruits, but anybody who wants to have their own trees, they're not going to be able to benefit? No, so there's still the opportunity for homeowners to um, purchase trees locally. Um, and plant them in their yards. Even if, let's say, we take a tree out of someone's yard and they say, you know, I really miss my my orange tree, my lemon tree, they can purchase a tree at a reputable nursery and replant. Uh, this disease does not live in the soil. The, the important thing is caring for the tree. So if they're doing insect prevention, um, making sure the tree has ample nutrients and, and, you know, doing good care for their tree, they can, you know, they'll be able to continue to have citrus trees. Now, what we're seeing in other states is is exactly what you're talking about. Um, homeowners are are 
their tree. There's no nobody out there helping homeowners like we're doing um, at CDFA and at LA County. And and when those trees go out, they go out. Uh, you know, there's nobody there to do treatments, uh, test the trees, nothing. So we're by far doing more than anywhere else in the country, perhaps the world, to to help uh, our local residents maintain their citrus trees and to protect citrus production in the state. Uh, Ken, very quickly, uh, what should a person who's got their own tree or trees look out for? They should be looking out for the little psyllids that are about the size of a grain of rice. They can get over-the-counter pesticides at uh, their gardening centers, uh, home improvement stores. Uh, They can apply those themselves if they want. Uh, If they're in a treatment area already, the state is already doing that. All right. Thank you both for joining us today. Uh, It's Ken uh, Pellman with the uh, L.A. County Agricultural Commissioner's Office. Also, Victoria Hornbaker, the director of the Citrus Pests and Disease Prevention Division in the Department of Food and Agriculture. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. If you have a big vacation planned this summer and already have your flight booked, you might want to hope that there are no big heat waves. That's because the FAA and climate scientists have a warning now about extreme heat and airline performances. Dan Bubb is a former airline pilot, current professor, and aviation history expert at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. Dan, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So uh, what they're saying, as I understand it, is that because of climate change, we're expecting much hotter weather to be the norm, in, at least in parts of the country and parts of the world, as we go forward. And that could... The suggestion is wreak havoc with airline schedules. How so? Okay, in aviation, there's something we call the three H's, high, hot, and humid. So if you have an airport that's high elevation, you have what's called density altitude, and that means the air is thinner, and the airplane takes longer distance to take off on the runway. Hot, when you have hot weather, the engines don't perform as well, and that can be problematic as well. And then humid, the humidity also substantially affects uh, airplane engine performance. So those three factors can really result in problems for longer takeoff distances. If, for example, the weather's too hot and you have a very heavy uh, wide-body jet, they may have to delay the flight until later in the evening when the temperature is cool enough so there is sufficient runway for the jet to safely take off. Okay, so the issue would be if this is climate change, this is something long term. This is something that uh, airlines would have to deal with for a long time. So that would real I could see how that would affect uh, the hub and spoke model or any kind of model of air travel. If you have to delay a lot of flights during the daytime and cram them all into the nighttime, we're going to see some very crowded skies, are we not? Yeah, yes, we will. And so what it's really going to do is test everybody's patience. And so I know it's hard. Um, people have travel schedules and they, they're trying to adhere to their travel schedule, but it, we, everybody's really going to have to be patient this summer, given the weather, given the shortage of pilots and air traffic controllers, and there likely will be delays and cancellations. So if everybody can just be patient and work with the airlines, that would be the ideal situation. So, I mean, it used to be that you'd look at an airline schedule and it would have departure time and arrival at destination time. Are we getting to the point where it's going to have departure time whenever, arrival time whenever? It, it all depends on the airline schedule. I know the Biden administration has been um, checking on the airlines, and the airlines are going to have a reduced travel schedule in the summer. So there might not be as many flights. There might not be flights at the same time that people are used to them. But you're still going to have a dependable departure and arrival time. It just will be a lighter flight schedule this summer. 
So the airline industry already facing a lot of headwinds. See what I did there? Yes, I, yeah, I, I, I saw that. Yeah, thanks a lot. I, so noted. It, it took me a few minutes to come up with that. But uh, already facing a lot of difficulty ahead. Is this going to knock some smaller carriers out of business at some point? Because as as we say, this climate change issue is not a short-term thing. It's going to be a long-term thing. Is that going to knock more uh, more carriers out? I, it, it might, although um, the, the demand for air travel is going to be pretty steady. And in fact, all indicators uh, show that it's increasing. So I don't know that smaller carriers are going to get knocked out of business necessarily. Uh, but again, it depends on what are the most profitable and heavily traveled routes that the airlines look at. So if they have smaller markets where there are fewer passengers, then they're probably going to look at reducing or eliminating those particular routes. I can see people hearing this starting to now look at their thermometer or, you know, at least where they're going or maybe even where they're departing from to Mm -hmm. see how high is that going to go. Uh, And I realize it depends on the aircraft and the length of runway. But in in general, Mm -hmm. is it possible to sort of look at a a temperature reading and go, "Uh uh-oh, we're getting to a point where this may be a problem for, you know, my flight to New York today? Uh, If you're flying out of Phoenix or here in Las Vegas, uh, it possibly could be, uh, depending on what the temperature is. I mean, if it's around 120 to 125, then, yeah, there's probably a decent chance that they're going to delay the flight because you don't want to overstress and overexert your engines uh, because that can create a big problem. But elsewhere, you should be okay. So if you've got these hot patches over the year, and it's going to be in some locations and maybe not others, would some of the airlines be able to route around that, or is that too big of a diversion? Uh, they, they could route around it. Again, most likely they're going to delay the flight because it's simply too hot. Uh, and, of course, it depends on the runway length. Now, Phoenix and Las Vegas both have very long runways, so they should be able to accommodate the planes. But, yes, if you have, say, for example, a British Airways 747, that's going to be a full flight uh, with full bags and fuel. They may take fewer bags or they may take a little bit less fuel because the plane may just need too much runway to get off the ground. So those are things that the pilots and flight dispatchers have to take in consideration when they work together. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Dan Bubb, former airline pilot and current professor and aviation history expert at UNLV on the effects of climate change on air travel. So another thing to worry about. Yeah. Now we have to worry about temperature. Mm-hmm. You may remember uh, that uh, famous book, Tuesdays with Maury, writer Mitch Album visited his college sociology professor, Maury Schwartz, as Schwartz was dying from ALS. Well, Album wrote about how Maury taught him lessons about life and living. Now, Maury died in 1995, but his work lives on thanks to his son, Rob. Great name, who just put together a new book of Maury's writings called The Wisdom of Maury. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Rob and Charles. I appreciate it. So right off the bat, uh, what's some of the best wisdom of Maury that you could share with us right now? Uh, okay, just like bang, 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 great. Um, well, I think there are five uh, sort of things that he suggests that aging people can do, and really people of any age can do, to um, maybe live a little bit more joyously, a little bit more creatively, a little bit more connectedly. So uh, he suggests, first of all, that laughter is extremely important in people's lives. And sometimes people seem to forget this. So seek out what makes you laugh, what you find humorous, and, you know, indulge in that. He also suggests uh, meditation. And I think that uh, it's really, really great for everybody to meditate. Calms you down. You can 
forget all your worries and just, you know, concentrate on your breath or whatever meditation you're doing. Um, he suggests that you focus your energy on one thing or something that's important to you. For example, create a new interest for yourself. If, uh, if you find life to be monotonous or boring, figure out what interests you and really get into that. Um, he suggests that you develop your relationships with your family, your friends, everybody to, to more depth. And actually, there's a lot of discussion in the book about things that get in the way of our human relationships. I don't have time to go through all of them with you right now, but there's a lot of stuff. There's some fantastic discussion about regret, for example. We all have regrets in our life, but are they holding us back or is there a way we can move past them? So that that's some of the stuff that's in the book. We mentioned that uh, your your father died in 95, right? That's right. Okay. So in in doing this project, Rob, did you sort of in in a way reconnect with your father? Because I, I would imagine delving into his thinking and putting it together in the form of a book must have, have resonated in a way that it wouldn't have, say, with another writer who was not related to the subject matter. Oh, absolutely. So there's a bunch of things that, that I should um, say here. So first of all, uh, I talked with my dad a lot while he was writing this book. And this is a book that he wrote. This isn't just notes or things that he had lying around his uh, study. He wrote a whole book from 1998 to 1992 and then wasn't able to get it published. So I had a whole manuscript to work with. It wasn't just random things. But as you say, yes, I mean, of course, as I read it, I could hear his voice booming in my head. So it was wonderful to, to re-experience all those things. Now, you talk about uh, a little bit about regrets. Uh, do you have regrets regarding your father that your father's writings brought up for you? That's an interesting question. You know, I'm not going to say that I necessarily had, you know, big regrets, but I think we all have small regrets. When I, I uh, when my father got ill, I was living in Japan, and I suggested to him that I could move back to the United States and, you know, be with him the whole time. And he said, no, I don't want you to change your life that drastically. So what I did was I traveled back and forth between Japan and the United States many times over the course of his illness, which was 16 months. But, you know, given everything that's happened, maybe it would have been better if I had moved back and lived at home for those 16 months. So that that's something of a regret. Did you discover anything in going over this manuscript uh, that, as you said, your, your dad wrote years ago? Did you discover anything that perhaps even now surprised you? Anything that surprised me? I mean, the, the book is pretty true to his thinking, right? If you've loved Tuesdays with Maury, and as you guys know, Tuesdays with Maury was this incredible uh, bestseller. The Wisdom of Maury basically presents the same ideas. It just goes a little bit deeper. It's a lot, you know, thicker book. It's a lot more discussion. Tuesdays with Maury is, is a discussion between Mitch and my dad, and it's pretty, you know, straightforward and direct. This has a lot of depth to it. But did anything surprise me? Um, not really. I mean, Dad and I talked a lot about this book while he was writing it, so I was very familiar with it. Um, I'm like a lot of people, I think. I, no, I, you're not like anybody, I know. <laughs> thank you. No, uh, I, I make jokes a lot. I laugh at life. I try to find things that are absurd and laugh at them. But at the same time, I'm also a worrier. I'm always worried about things. I always tend to think the worst of any situation that comes Ooh. up. The boss doesn't say hi to me. Oh, my God, I'm going to get fired. Uh, I'm, I'm that kind of a thinker. But I'm aware of that. And I try to keep that in check with laughter, but I'm not always successful. Any advice for me that I could find in this book? 
Yeah, I'm sure there is. Uh, I think that this is something that plagues a lot of people. And I think some of the things that I mentioned, so first of all, if you meditate and you forget all of those worries and just focus your mind, I think that may help you. I mean, whether it helped you as much as it would help somebody else, it's hard to say. And But I think this is really endemic of our society. We're always constantly worried about something. Am I going to get fired? Am I going to have enough money? Am I going to do this or that? And it is definitely something that you need to leave behind for the most part because, you know, it'll all work out. And I think that's one of the messages of this book is that if you pursue in a real honest and authentic way what interests you and the your relationships in your life and try and do your best in those and really not screw anybody over, which is, you know, something my father talks about as well, being authentic with people, um, then I think those worries are not going to come to pass. I don't know if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> or it does. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, that's... Uh... Uh, uh, well, I'm trying to find the name now. Rob uh, uh, Schwartz, uh, they're uh, putting us together this new book. Is it? It's available. It's available now, right? Wisdom of More. The Wisdom of More was released April 18th. It's okay. available through all great booksellers and all all those famous online booksellers. Got it. Got it. All right. So uh, go grab that book right now. So is, is it true, Rob, that if the boss doesn't say hello to you, you think you're going to get fired? Yeah. Yeah. No? I start. I, my brain starts. I, I uh, so, turn everything into a catastrophe. So there's something I meant to tell you. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> now you're worried. <sighs> Now he's worried. Look at him. He looks. You look worried. Stop Any, worrying. Anybody get a Xanax I can borrow? Thanks. <laughs> All right, that's it for KNX In-Depth. I'm going to go to Worry in the Corner now. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.